Um, this morning, I start off with kind of a serious question, okay? Uh, normally, you know, I keep it light and fun, but this is a serious one. It's a heavy question, and here it is. It'll be on the screen. So it's just simply this. Is the world better off or worse off because of Christianity? Think about that for a moment, right? Is the world better off or worse off because of Christianity? What do you think? Better, Better, okay. What'd you say? Both, Both, okay. Uh, Okay, so we've got kind of everything. So now give me some reasons why. Why might the world be better because of Christianity? Okay, points the world toward Jesus, albeit imperfectly. Yes, that would be true. Hope, okay, yep. Anybody else a little concerned that the room is this quiet when we ask that question? (laughs) Because I'm afraid if I say this, it's not going to be so quiet. Why would we say the world is worse off because of Christianity? Execution of the plan is not so great. Sure. Okay, so Christians are decently well known for persecuting others on at times and on occasions and sometimes too often. Starting war. Starting war, sure. Yeah, that's a fun one, right? I was reading this week, you know, and I was looking through, is, you know, just Google that. Is the world better off because of Christianity? And this came up. It said in 2010, over in Australia, um, the Center for Public Christianity over there, they held a debate on whether the world would be better off without religion. And they had three atheists uh, that argued that the world would be better off without Christianity. And they had three scholars, biblical scholars, who argued how the world is, you know, needs religion, how you know, the religion, Christianity, makes the world better. And so after, at the end of the debate, after listening to everybody present their case, the audience voted. How do you think the audience voted? Yeah, laugh, because it's not great. Overwhelmingly, that night, they voted that the world would be better off without religion. Isn't that terrible? Now, that was 2010. That was 14 years ago for those keeping score. Yeah, not, not yesterday. Do you think since that time it's gotten better or worse? Worse, man. I'm depressing you now, aren't I? I mean, it's like, man, I'm really glad I came to church today, you know. Author, uh, the late Christopher Hitchens, he was considered one of the new atheists of this generation, and he just said, uh, religion poisons everything. But the question is, is it true? Is it true? And it's a tough question, honestly, probably one we would rather not have to deal with, but it's a profoundly important question for us. It's profoundly important because how we answer this question How we think our faith impacts outside beyond these four walls will tremendously impact how we engage our faith in the world. You agree with that? Because if we think the world is worse off because Christianity exists, what are we going to do? Just keep our mouth shut, keep our head down, and just move on, right? And just keep it to ourselves. But if we believe 
that our faith in Jesus, that following Jesus matters, that it has made an impact for good in our lives, and we believe that it can also make an impact for good in others, how might we live then? Live it out more vocally, more open, not as a jerk. I always feel like I have to say that because, man, it, the jerks make the news all the time. And it's like, oh, shut up. You don't represent me. So we've been in this series. We're calling Rooted. You know, and we're trying to figure out what's the foundation. Where do we live? And we, you know, we talked about being rooted in Christ. And we talked about being rooted in one another just here in this body as, of Ashworth. And we looked at being rooted in the storms and how important that is. And last week we talked about how important it is to be rooted in simplicity and just getting back to the things that really matter instead of trying to make this thing so complicated and complex. You know, uh, we want to move towards simplicity. So today, what I want us to do is look at kind of what I feel like is the next progressive thing to, for us to understand and how we're rooted. And it's just simply this. How can we be rooted in the neighborhood? How can we be rooted outside these four walls? Like I said, how we answer that first question is really going to impact what we do with this question. Now, to be fair, as we've already mentioned a few things, it's not like we can, can't, that we can say that Christianity hasn't ever done anything to make the world an ugly place. Can we all agree that, yes, the name of Jesus has been attached to some very horrific, horrible events perpetrated by people that claim to be following Jesus. I mean, you know, we just need to own these things like the easy ones or the crusades. You know, Constantine has a vision and he comes to Christ and that's up for debate. Was he really a Jesus follower? Was it politi politically expedient? Who knows? You know, Jesus knows. But in this vision that he has, he says, you know, Jesus told him to go fight. And in, and in carrying that battle forward, they even put the cross on their shields to represent Jesus going with them. And what do they do? They slaughter. They slaughter and they slaughter so many people in the name of the peace-loving, peacemaking Jesus. Let's sit in that for a moment. And we wanna, don't even really want to talk about slavery and people in our own country, you know, who use the Bible as the justification for keeping others made in the image of God as property. Not humans, not made in the image of God, but property. And even in our own time, in our own culture, we can talk about the hatred, the slander, the violence, often perpetrated with a Jesus bumper sticker on somebody's car or a Jesus flag flying somewhere. And as I was writing this this week, I just ended that section with, God, have mercy on us. Wow. We can acknowledge and own the ugliness that is there. However, we also do get to acknowledge some of the really good things. And I hope you know that. Because I believe, and I think it can be shown, that the world is a much, much better place because of Jesus and his followers. I mean, when you stop and think about it, where does the idea of morality come from? Yeah, you can debate and say, oh, but we've used that wrong. Sure. But where does that idea come anyway? Why can't I just walk up to Matthew Becker and just punch him as hard as I want in the face? 
primarily because he'll turn around, punch me back, and I'll cry in front of everybody, and it'll be very embarrassing. But why can't I do that? In a culture that says, you be you, that's me. I want to do it. It makes me happy. No, there's something beyond us, outside of us, that exists, that says, be kind. Love your neighbor. Do good to other people. You can't really stand on that without having a foundation for it. I mean, because if we go to the scientific side of things, what did Darwin teach us? Darwin taught us survival of the fittest, which we take on out. That means what? Might means right. So as long as I can beat you up or kill you, I'm right. That exists over there, but followers of Jesus go, no, there's something better that we're called to, something deeper. Um, from the creation story, we're told how humanity was created in the image of God, stamped with God's mark on us. And because of that, we don't ever get to look down at people and look at them, even the vilest person in the world, and look at them and say, you know what, you're a waste of skin. We don't get to say that because God didn't do that. They are still stamped with his image. And if that wasn't hard enough, Jesus said absolutely absurd things like not just love your neighbor. You guys are pretty much easy to love most of the time. But Jesus goes on and he says, you know what? Love your enemy. Turn the other cheek. I mean, what kind of craziness is that? That's not what I want to do. And if we claim a level of morality, if we look in the world and we say things like sex trafficking is wrong and slavery is wrong, where do these ideas come from? And I'm really excited because starting Easter Sunday, we're going to begin a brand new series looking at just Jesus. We're going to figure out who Jesus is. Now, I'm arguing for a title of that series called, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? But Liz tells me she can only think of Slim Shady when I say that. So I don't know if that'll last. We'll see. But you know, from the early days of Christianity, Jesus' followers have been living in ways that have been countercultural, in, in ways that the rest of the world looked at and said, you guys are fools for living this way. I mean, did you know in the first century, if you had a child, a child born into a family, the dad could pick whether or not he wanted to keep that child for any reason. There was no law that said you had to. And if you didn't want it, if it was a girl, God forbid, you know, and what good's a girl back then, you could do whatever you wanted to with it. So you could go throw it in a river to try to drown it. You could leave it out with the trash. You could even leave it in places where, you know, be exposed to the elements or maybe even eaten by stray dogs, I read. I mean, how's that make you feel? Or even possibly as an infant sold to slave traffickers. It was not until... 374 A.D., 374, so basically 330 years, give or take, after Christ. That is when the first, uh, it was considered a crime to kill a child. But you know what the Christians did? When they knew a child would be thrown into the water, what did they do? They went to the water, and they rescued him. If they saw a child going to the trash heap, you know what they did? They went to the trash heap and rescued them. And they were mocked for doing so. I mean, in keeping with this idea of human dignity and the importance of life, in 300 AD, not only were they rescuing children, but they were also forming schools to educate people. Do you know that? 
And as early as 400 A.D., they formed what we would call a hospital. I mean, after all, why are so many of our hospitals and doctors' clinics named after religious denominations? And did you know, I didn't know this until I was researching this this week, Johns Hopkins and the Mayo Clinic were both started by Christians, people who followed Jesus. And while some Christians were definitely on the wrong side of history with this one, William Wilberforce, a man following Jesus, was credited, is credited with ending the slave trade in the British Empire. In fact, he argued that it was impossible to be a Christian without fighting to abolish slavery. I mean, that's a bold statement, isn't it? If you're not just against slavery, if you're not fighting to end it, you can't even call yourself a Christian. Wow, that's pretty bold. If you're interested in this stuff, there's a book out there called Jesus Skeptic that outlines these and many more things that Christians have done in the world to make the world a better place. But really, we have to ask the question this, why? Why would we go to all this trouble? Why do we care what condition the world is in? Why would we, why don't we just come to church and let's just sit in our nice building? I mean, the heat's on this morning. I can feel it playing the piano. It got me a little sweaty, but I could turn it down. But I mean, it's nice and cozy, right? You know, we show up, whether it's summer or winter, and this beautifully, you know, conditioned air is wonderful. Why would we even care to do anything like this? The education, the health care, telling them about Jesus. Why? Because Jesus cared, and Jesus cares about people. And if our goal is to become little Jesuses, which is what Christian means, we've got to look like him. We've got to do what he did. He's the model, not me, not examples throughout history. He's the one we turn to. Jesus is where we go, and he's the one that says, you know what? I'm glad you guys meet. I think it's important. I want you to worship. I want you to fellowship. I want you to encourage one another in following Jesus. And I want you to get your rear ends out of here. Don't sit in this building. Don't isolate yourself from other. Jesus was the original one that taught us to be rooted in the neighborhood. We talk about it all the time. John chapter 1, Jesus was, you know, came in flesh to dwell among us. He tabernacled. He moved into the neighborhood, not just for the religious folks, but for the entire world. What we have to acknowledge is that the world has changed, and a lot of times people aren't looking to get in here to find out about Jesus, are they? You know, there was a time where it was culturally necessary to be a, quote, Christian. If you needed somebody, a banker to help you get a mortgage loan, if you needed a realtor, if you needed to make business connections, if you needed to see, be seen as a good, upstanding member of the community, what did you need? You needed to be a member of a church. I mean, if you're really good, you might even be a deacon of a church. I mean, <laughs> you know, you think that's necessary anymore? Do you think anybody goes to their bank, looks at their loan officer, their mortgage officer, their real estate, whatever, whoever you engage, do you ever look and say, hmm, I wonder if they follow Jesus? Doesn't matter anymore, does it? And so what that tells us is that we have to figure out ways to get out. We have to figure out ways to reach them. How are we going to do this? 
Unfortunately, what I see sometimes happening in the name of Jesus is the lowest common effective means. I mean, I've said before, I think I would have been a great pastor 50 years ago. It seemed much more black and white back then. Living in tension just, (laughs) you know. But with that, 50 years ago, a lot of times preachers were known for what? Hellfire and brimstone and a lot of guilt and shame. And is there any greater motivator than guilt and shame? Nah, not really. But maybe manipulation or maybe even another one, fear. And don't we see that even still being used today? And as I was thinking about this, I think about these guys that preach and they're on the television and they're spouting these messages. And I find myself even as I, I'm, I think I'm a good Jesus follower and even I kind of start feeling myself getting anxious and you know, getting all tense inside. And I think, man, if I feel this way, how must everybody else feel? But there's manipulation, there's fear in their control. And I thought to myself, why? Why would we do that? Why do we feel that that is the best and most effective way to let other people know about Jesus? And I had this thought. I think it's because we often, ourselves, of our own message, we resort to that. Does that resonate? I mean, if we don't believe our own message, but we have the guilt ourselves that says, well, Jesus says we've got to go tell somebody. What do we do? We resort to things that aren't the way that Jesus did it. I follow a guy on Twitter, X, whatever it's called nowadays. His name's David Fitch. He's a professor over at uh, Northern Seminary in Chicago. And he wrote this not too long ago. He said, in Christendom, Christendom is the age where, you know, Christians were in power and controlled everything. He said, we tell or convince people they're going to hell and offer them Christ's salvation as an ultimatum. Yep. And then post-Christendom, which many, including me, would say we're in right now, said we listen to people, and when the pain of already living in hell becomes evident, we offer Christ's salvation that frees, restores, and heals them. Now, isn't that beautiful? Which side of that equation would you rather be on? What is the message that we want to be proclaiming? But we can't do this unless we get outside these four walls and actually live our faith. So how do we do that? I mean, honestly, as I was writing this this week, I thought, where should I go? Which of the two numerous to count passages in Scripture should I rely on to convince you of how important this is to Jesus? You know, we could go to Luke chapter 10, where Jesus sends out 72 people, and they go to the towns and the places that he was about to visit, and he told them, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near. That's a powerful message, right? Go tell them. We could talk even in the Old Testament. Go figure. The Old Testament, Jeremiah 29 where after the Israelites were taken captive, you know, and, and they're resisting there. They're thinking, oh, get us out of here. And the prophet Jeremiah steps on the scene. And what does he say? He says, buckle up, buttercup. You're going to be here for a while. He says, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And we've preached on that before. Matthew 28, we've preached on that. I mean, Jesus says what? Go 
and make disciples. Or even Matthew chapter 5, the most well-known sermon of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. And right after he says the Beatitudes, he says to them this. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I mean, take your pick. All those are good, right? All those tell us the same thing. We need to be concerned and caring for our neighbors. And if you've been around church for any length of time, this is old hat, right? You've heard this many times. But I can't help but wonder or feel at times if we still feel a reluctance to engage. Do we feel an embarrassment? Are we ashamed of our faith? And to be honest, I don't think so. I really don't. But boy, that would preach, wouldn't it? Oh, man, talk about 50 years ago, Pastor Brent. Let me preach on you being ashamed of your faith. Let me yell at you for a little while, tell you how bad you are. I mean, and that would help, right? I mean, that just motivates you to be want to go find another church, you, me, you and me both. But as I thought about this message this week, I was continually drawn back to a passage. I was actually reluctant to use it because of where we're going at Easter with this series on Jesus. But I thought, ah, if we preach it twice, it'll be fine. Just re reinforces the point. Matthew chapter 9. After Matthew chapter 8, Jesus has finished the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew starts telling about Jesus and what he's doing says he's healing folks, like all kinds of folks. A man with leprosy, a man that's paralyzed. Peter's mother-in-law has a fever. Curious which side of the debate Peter was on that. Heal her or not, I'm not sure. He's casting out demons. He's teaching. He's calming a storm. He even in this part of Matthew is, has raised a dead girl back to life. In one chapter, <laughs> Jesus was a busy man. And after all these reports of these things, of what Jesus is doing, listen to what Matthew writes. He says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So make the workers feel guilty and shame them into, oh, wait, no. And ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Man, does it get better than that? Jesus had what? Compassion. They say, so you looked at the crowd, his, you know, and, and I think for us, we hear the word compassion and it's thrown around. It doesn't really carry. I mean, here's what we need to feel. When the Bible talks about the compassion of Jesus, it's like a punch in the gut. I mean, that is how deeply we're feeling these things. This isn't, oh, that's too bad. What's for lunch? That's kind of what we think of compassion sometimes, right? Oh, I felt bad. Oh, I feel bad. That's not the compassion of Christ. The Bible Project has a great video on this word. We're going to link to it this week on our media and stuff. But it means to be moved, deeply moved, caring, like a mother's care for their newborn infant. Think about that. I mean, we've got a few new infants here in the church, don't we? 
I mean, I see Liz every day. I see Lydia every day. And I see that child's face light up every time that child comes around the corner into her mother's arms. Every day, every time. God is that way toward us. That care like a mother, nurturing that child at her breast is the way God is. To feel it so deeply within. And I think sometimes we think about Jesus and we're like, wow, he cared. Go figure. But why should this surprise us? Because over and over in the Bible, this is the image we get of Jesus. And we get the same image of God. We just lose it sometimes in not understanding the stories of the Old Testament and seeing this warrior God and assuming the mean, angry God is the one we're looking at. And yet it's not. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of who God is, and the compassion of Jesus is the compassion of God. And that's why over and over in the Bible, we see that God is compassionate and long-suffering and not willing that any should perish. This is the way of our God, the God of compassion. But it's not just an emotion and a feeling. It, it starts there, and it's something that's felt so deeply that it moves you to action. It moves you to actually do something about it. And I wonder, what do we feel so passionately about that it actually moves us to do something about it? I mean, what are we pounding the table over, weeping over, caring so deeply about that it moves us? It says, I can't just sit in the place that I am anymore. I think the greatest action of the enemy that we have seen is distraction. Distraction. And we allow ourselves to see the need and to feel a little bit. And now what's on Netflix? You know? What's on social media? Whatever. And I don't say that to make you feel bad. I'm the chief sinner. I'm right there. I mean, I get grief. But what do we feel so passionately about that we're willing to do something about it? See, compassion should be what moves us into the neighborhood. But then there's a problem in there. Because then we have to stop and say, but how? How are we going to do this? And if we're not careful, a good church word comes into our mind and we think, oh, well, I know what Brent's talking about. He's talking about evangelism. And I kind of am, but kind of not. For me, when I think of that word and what we're kind of talking about today, I think about college. I know you're like, Brent, you can remember college? Yes, yeah, shut up. <laughs> there was a scholarship that was offered. Do not make fun of this amount. It's $1,200 a year. Any money was good money. Hey, in 1995, it was really good money. It was about a million dollars today with inflation. But <laughs> actually, I looked it up. It's $2,400 today. But my college tuition was only $3,200. So getting a third of my tuition paid for was a big deal. And what was the requirement? What was the catch? The scholarship was called the 12. They gave it to 12 people. Clever, right? But the hook was you have to witness to a hundred people, I think a semester. And by witness, they meant, we're going to give you 100 gospel tracts and you have to pass them out. Okay? 
So being a good rule follower back then, what did I do? I took my 100 tracks. I drove over to the godless, pagan, secular state university across town. Think Drake University. Just kidding. Just kidding. Oh, sorry. I couldn't resist. But, and I stood in the middle of the campus with my handful of tracks. And I sheepishly pushed these pieces of paper toward anybody walking toward me. Now, you get this image in your mind. Imagine this. This is great, right? Here, this really, really skinny, like Jaden skinny kind of guy sitting out there in the middle of a campus as people walk by. Do you think people are coming my direction? Oh, no. And Brent wasn't chasing them down either. But I was doing my best. I had 100 here, here, here here. Does anybody think that's what Jesus was talking about? No, not at all. If this is how we think we're supposed to be rooted in community, community, I think we're really missing some important pieces, aren't we? I mean, let's go back to Jesus. What did he do? He said he healed every disease and sickness. This is a bit convicting because of who, who these people were. Who were these people that needed healing? The sick, the outcast, those that had been pushed to the outside of society that society had said, get away from me. Don't touch me. Don't get near me. You are unclean. The untouchables. And Jesus went up to them and stepped into their loneliness and stepped into their isolation and into their pain and he touched them and he healed them. What else did he do? If you keep reading the Gospels, you realize he did a lot. Like feeding the crowds. If they were hungry, he gave them something to eat. We have the miraculous story of the 5,000 around this time. We can't miss the compassion that led Jesus to meet the tangible needs of the community. And you know how Jesus was able to do that? He got close enough to them to see what the need actually was. Over and over in this series, we've talked about presence. The presence of God being present for one another. And now we're hearing it again. It's time for us to make sure we are present in the neighborhood. To be close enough to see the need and meet it. Not from arm's length. The closer we get, the more aware we will become of the need and the more likely we are to do something about it. Now, we also read he did something else. He taught. He taught about the kingdom of God. He talked about his, him coming, why that was good, what that meant. Too often we think of one side or the other, and we create this stupid debate about, well, what's the right way to go? Both. It's not either or, it's both. Both. Jesus tells us, I love this, excuse me, Paul writes this, gets it from Jesus. He says this in Colossians 3, he says, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with what? Compassion. Should be the thing we wear. Which as we think about how to root ourselves in our neighborhoods, we have to make some possible corrections how we're going to go about it. How do we typically think about this? Not just healing in those things, but I think even the attitude we approach it with. Let me run through these quickly. Persuasion versus, versus coercion. 
Which side do you think we need to be on there? Yeah. How often do we land on the other side? Probably too often, right? Romans 2, 4, one of my favorite passages, it says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that His kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Wait, what? Let me read that again. It's His kindness that is meant to turn us from our sin. Not beating somebody over the head with a bat, not, you know, repeatedly criticizing and tearing them down. Kindness. I think the others are on the screen. Look at that. It's persuasion or coercion. Is it about a presentation or presence? How many times have we just walked into a relationship with air quotes and said, oh, let me tell you something. Let me tell you. God has a wonderful plan for your life. There's a mighty gulf that stands between you and God. That's a presentation. Presence is relationship. Knowing their name, looking them in the eye, listening. People or projects kind of ties in with that last one. It's not a notch in your belt if you get somebody to follow Jesus, just so you know. Jesus is not keeping score. It's important, don't get me wrong, but Jesus is not keeping score. What else do we see? It's transformational or transactional. Boy, that's got a lot of implications we don't have time for. Transactional things have just bitten the church in the rear end too many times for numbers' sake. What is it? Is it the image of God in others? Or do we see them as the enemy? Which ties with this last one. Is it count being countercultural or being a culture warrior? You can't, you won't care for those if you see them as the enemy. And can we just stop being against everything and everyone? Can, as Jesus followers, we, can we stop looking like the angriest, most sullen people on the planet? It is not us versus them. Jesus never presented it that way. Never. I thought about this. I thought about the things that we're doing as a church. Through the Learning Center through the Community Development Corporation, through that silly Ashworth stuff that's going to be opening soon. Oh, God, no. I'm not ready yet. I will be by May. I'll get there. Why do we do these things? Presence. To be present in our neighborhood. And we don't sell cups at Ashworth Snow with memory verses on them. They just have the most delicious shaved ice or soft serve that you'll find in the Des Moines Metro. And a hopefully a smiling worker handing it out the window. You know, it's interesting about this passage used about Jesus and his compassion. Immediately before it in Matthew 9, you know what's happening? Jesus is being accused by the religious folks of working with the devil. Can you imagine that? Imagine being accused of doing the work of God and being accused of working with the devil. But that's what it looks like. Maybe that's the point. If we just look like everything else that's out there, maybe that's what we're Maybe it's looking like nothing else <laughs> that actually looks most like Jesus. I just end with this. God has placed you where you are for a reason. God has placed this church where we are for a reason. Where you live 
what you do, the activities your kids are involved in, all for a reason. It's no accident you are where you are. The question we have to ask is this. What does God want to do where I am? And I think if we sit with that, we will find that we'll gather here, we'll worship our hearts out, we'll have wonderful conversations and fellowship and hear lots of laughter in the foyer, and then we're going to walk out of this place and we're going to say, okay, I see you, God. I'm joining you right there. And then we'll find that we, individually and as a church, are actually rooted in the neighborhood. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus as a model of what it looks like to just be in the neighborhood, to love and to serve, to get his hands dirty, to touch the unlovely, to touch those that were outcast. And God, I'm thankful for that because that means he was willing to touch me as well. So God, let us sit in that question for a little bit. Where are you working? What are you doing? Why am I where I am? And how do I get out of my house and out of this church building to find the roots that I need in this neighborhood, God, to be present just as Jesus was present. Thanks, God, for the challenge, the encouragement to be more and do more because, God, in that challenge, it's just ultimately a challenge to look more like Jesus.